a wonderful job of singing O Holy Night and, and helping us to concentrate on really what the season is about. It is a uh, intent in, in our series, uh, thank you honey, in our Advent series to slow down and, and consider and ponder the wonder, the wonder of God becoming man and to really just to behold him in his glory, to understand all the implications, and to worship. So hearing these songs and coming together and the preaching of God's word this morning is an invitation to worship. We're going to be looking at John chapter 1. I'm going to look at just verse 14 this morning. We've been going through in our series in Advent uh, in John 1 to 1, chapter 1, verses 1 to 18, but we're just going to look at verse 14 this morning. And by the way, if you're a guest here, uh, let me introduce myself. My name is Paul Buckley. I'm a lead pastor here, and I get the privilege of uh, most Sundays bringing God's word. Let's pray and ask God to speak to us and show us his glory and give us the ability to slow down and behold and be changed as we encounter his glory. Lord, we thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that your word is living and active, that you are the living God. And, Lord, you're here with us as we gather in your name this morning. And, Lord, you're a God who is glorious beyond imagination. And you are a God that wants to show us your glory and your amazing goodness and holiness and mercy and your deep care for your people, for us this morning. You want to show us your glory. And we pray, as Moses did, show us your glory. As we hear about these truths through your word, as your word is taught and illustrated and explained and proclaimed, Lord, show us your glory and use me, Lord. How? I need you, Lord. Um, I want to serve you and your people. So help us, Lord. Help me. Help us all in this time. And Spirit of God, come and show us the glory of the Father and the Son, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. One verse to look at this morning. Actually, I think I have the whole section projected there, but if you could move it to verse 14, Dan, that would be great. I just want to read that verse, and it says this, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John chapter 1, verse 14. Uh, In 1987, there was a movie that came out called The Last Emperor. Did anyone see that movie? Anyone remember it? It's the story of Puyi, the last uh, Qing Dynasty emperor of China. He became emperor in 1912 at the ripe age of two years and ten months. And as the emperor of China, he was waited upon by hundreds of servants. He lived a life of luxury and honor in the Forbidden City. So the last emperor to actually live in the Forbidden City, that was the the royal grounds, the royal palace and gardens in Beijing. And as emperor, he ruled absolutely. When approaching the imperial throne, one was expected to bow down to kowtow, it's called, by dropping to the floor and knocking your forehead on the floor nine times to show respect to the emperor. Direct eye contact between the emperor and all but the highest officials was forbidden. In conversation with the emperor, it was a crime to compare yourself with the emperor in any way. And certainly, to, you never addressed him as you. He was called Lord of 10,000 years. Such was the honor 
and glory of this emperor who ruled one quarter of the population of the whole world at the time. But the story of Puyi is that he was removed as emperor in the political upheaval of the 20th century. And at the end of the movie, the end of his life in the 1960s, he's nothing but a simple commoner, a gardener among the many people of China. He's no different than anybody else. And the movie is centered around this idea of Puyi's descent from absolute ruler over a quarter of the world, being revered by everyone, to a simple nobody among the vast population. It's the shock of that descent that is the core of the movie, and it's what catches your attention in the movie. And yet, for all the shock of that contrast, there's a far greater descent by a far greater emperor, a absolute emperor in the absolute sense, the king of infinite glory who descends and subjects himself to infinite humiliation. The descent of God, the, the word becoming flesh and all that comes with us with that should shock us beyond anything else and fill us with wonder beyond anything else. So I want to just dig into this verse and the truth behind it, how we behold God's glory in the God-man, Jesus Christ. So I'm just going to look at the verse and section it through the different phrases in the verse. So first is the word became flesh. The glorious word becomes flesh in verse 14. So this word, it talks about the word earlier, and we spent time on that. The word is with God, the Word is God, He's fully God, He's God the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, the Word. Uh, he is fully God in every way. He's dwelled with God uh, from eternity past. He dwells with God outside of time. He's infinite in His qualities. He's glorious beyond imagination. And He, uh, the second person with the, well, the Father and the Spirit, have, have planned together this glorious plan where they're going to reveal their glory in history and in time. And so the storyline continues, and it tells us the Word became flesh. It's interesting that it says that, the Word became flesh. It could have said the Word became human, but it doesn't. It could have said the, the Word took on a body, but it doesn't. It's the stark word flesh that is used. It's, it's meant to be stark. It's to sound stark to us, that, that the eternal God, God Almighty, who fills the whole universe and yet the universe can't contain him. God Almighty, who's present across all time, but lives outside and beyond time, this God, this infinite glorious one, became the stuff of flesh, skin, muscle, bone, tendons, fat, nerves, brain, DNA, RNA, hormones, eyes, hands, feet, intellect, emotions, and, and as human with that, uh, in union with a human soul. That's what flesh is. It's the, the stuff of humanity. And he took on all of that, the raw materials of humanity. He became fully human. God, eternal, became flesh. Real, physical, spiritual humanity. He became fully human in all that it is. He didn't merely appear to be flesh, as some have said. No, he became flesh. 
he didn't simply reside as, as a soul, a spirit within a human body. No. He became flesh, a, full, a man fully with body and soul together. He didn't exist alongside the human Jesus, the divine Jesus somehow, uh, a second person with the human Jesus. That's one of the ideas that was there in history. No, he became flesh fully, united with flesh, with humanity, the eternal God. One being, one being, one being, fully God and fully human together. It's amazing. It's a mystery beyond comprehension and and. It's my job, by God's grace, to help us just stop for a second with this story we've heard for years and just reconsider how we regard it, reconsider what it means, reconsider the import of it, because we take it for granted. This is amazing. This is incomprehensible. Let me just give you an illustration. Scientists have been trying for a long time to come up with a fusion generator. They're working on one right now. There's been, you probably remember cold fusion if you're old enough. There was this idea that it could happen without, with just in regular metal and so forth. But they've been tr- trying to come up with this idea of a fusion generator. Fusion is a nuclear process uh, where hydrogen, or really any element, hydrogen turns into helium. And in the process gives off energy. Why do you want to do that? Well, if we could make it work, you would need about a nickel-sized piece of metal to store enough hydrogen to power your home for 100 years. That's how much power is in this fusion process. It would be fantastic. It would change everything because then you just need hydrogen or, or one of its uh, isotopes to make it. And there's hydrogen everywhere, right? Water everywhere. So it would be amazing to make fusion happen. Scientists have been trying to, to make it happen for a long time. They're working hard on it. But the problem is... They can't find a vessel to contain the reaction because it requires temperatures of 100 million degrees and pressures up to a billion times atmospheric pressure. So we can't make a vessel to contain fusion. And this is just the energy of uh, the tiniest little atoms. And it's actually only a very small fraction of the potential energy of a tiny little atom creates fusion with all this energy. We can't create something to contain all that power, all that temperature and pressure just in this tiny little atom. And yet we take it for granted that the eternal God who made these atoms, who who possesses power and energy beyond them, infinite power, infinite energy, resides as a man in a human body, eternal infinite power and glory contained in a baby's body. Not only in a baby's body, but in a little zygote, a one-cell beginning of a human body. That's incredible. It's amazing. You know, I I heard someone years ago uh, say, uh, I'm not looking forward to the heaven that people talk about because, you know, we're just going to sing songs to God the whole time, and that's going to be boring. And this is a a Christian leader who said this. I thought, wow, you you are so missing the mark on that. To behold the glory and to begin to comprehend these truths, 
And to be free from our earthly minds and our, our limitations, our sinful limitations, to allow your mind and your heart and to take in the glory of God, just in the incarnation itself, will occupy you with the fullest joy, the greatest delight, the, the, the most incredible songs and the most amazing acts forever and ever. It will never be boring. It will only get better and better. And that's just the glory of the incarnation itself. It's just one part of God's amazing plan through Christ. It's beyond understanding and glorious, beyond compare. Oh God, give us minds and hearts to grasp your glory. But there's more to the story than him merely becoming a man. As glorious as that is alone, there's more to the story. Philippians 2 gives us a little more of the picture than what we see just in John 1, Philippians 2, 1 to 7, amazing section. Starting in verse 5, Paul is talking to the Philippians because they're having conflict, and he wants them to be, be together, to walk in unity and humility. And so he points to Christ. But in the process of pointing to Christ, he reveals some things about the incarnation and about what Christ did that are, that are mind-blowing. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, speaking of Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. It says here that he was in the form of God. Now, this doesn't mean that he was like kind of you know, in the mode that looked like God. That's not what the word form there means. It really means like the classification, the class, the, the fullness, the category, the classification of God. He was fully God. He was the real thing, the being. That's what form means there, the being, the classification. He was God, God the Son, one with the Father, distinct as a person, God the Son. And he chose not to count equality with God a, a thing to be grasped is what it says. He chose not to count the fact that he's God. And as God, he has divine prerogatives. He's omniscient. He knows all things. He's all-powerful. He's glorious. He's perfect. He's ever-present, omnipresent, as God. And he remained God, fully. He never became less than God. So all those things remained who he was, but he didn't grasp those things. He didn't say, this is my divine prerogative and I will require that all humanity and all people bow down to me immediately. He, he didn't hold on to his divine prerogative to be the center of our affections in every way, to be served. All these things that are his by right as God. He, he didn't count those as he, uh, a thing to be grasped, to hold on to this. But what did he do with those things, that, those divine prerogatives? What did he do with those things? He emptied himself of those privileges and those prerogatives by taking the form of a servant. He took the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. So, again, that word form, the form of God, the classification of God, the, the being of God. Instead of holding on to what is rightly his, he took on the form of a human, 
became fully human, the classification of human. But it isn't just human, it's a servant. He became a human to be a servant, to serve others, to give himself for others, to lay down his life for others, to lay down his life for the Father, and to lay down his life for his people, all and any who would turn from the, their sin and their selves and turn to Christ, his people. He laid his life down for us. So he didn't just become man. He did indeed. And that is a mystery and a glory that's incomprehensible. But he became man to serve. To serve others. To serve you. To serve us. That makes the story all the more amazing. The Word became flesh is all the more amazing because of the intent, the direction, the goal in becoming flesh. What would it be like to have woken up this morning and had a knock on the door, and there is Queen Elizabeth II. I don't know if you've been watching The Crown. There's, I think it's well done about her life. There is Queen Elizabeth II, like as she is now at 92, right? 92 years old, at your door with her whole entourage. What would it be like to wake up, knock, knock, open it up, and there she is? It'd be shocking. It'd be amazing. Queen Elizabeth, I can't believe you're here. Why me? Why today? What's going on? Did I do something wrong? I mean, it would be, it would be amazing just to have that with her whole entourage, just to have her with you. But imagine instead of that, she shows up, at your door, knock, 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 and there's Queen Elizabeth, and she's not in her blue outfit with the hat and all that stuff. She's in overalls. She's got her hair back in a bun. She's got a bucket and a mop in her hands. And she said, you know, I, six months ago I left my job as queen, and I started learning how to clean houses, how to do this well, and I want to clean your house. I've come here to serve you today, and it's my joy and delight to do it. Would you let me in? You would really freak out. Well, first you'd be thinking, oh, no, the queen's going to see my house. She's going to see that dirty bathroom. She's going to see that unmade, unmade bed, that kitchen that's out of order, oh, no. But I hopefully you'd go beyond that, and you'd be amazed. Queen Elizabeth would lower herself just to show up, but even more, to serve you and to have done that with intent. She went to school for six months or whatever, went and worked with others for six months to learn how to clean houses and came to serve you. That's what's going on in this story, guys. That's what this story is about. This is God who's far greater than Queen Elizabeth, far more glorious, far more worthy. There's many more attendants in his entourage. He's glorious beyond comprehension. The, the angels can't even behold the fullness of who he is. He lives in unapproachable light. He's so glorious you can't even gaze at the fullness or anything near the fullness of who he is. He had to look at Moses when he asked to see his glory. He couldn't see God. He had to kind of look at what was left behind after God passed through 
the area. And he, this God, has become a man and has become in his humanness come as the ultimate servant to you and to me. The Word became flesh. And John 1.14 calls us to, to simply behold. Often when we hear truth in God's Word, and, and it's a good impulse, often we have this impulse, what should I do? I've got to do something. And there are things to do, certainly, that God has for us. But most importantly, it's just to slow down, behold, and take it in, and worship. And just say, Lord, I'm amazed. I'm amazed that you would do this for anybody, never mind for me. That you would come and lower yourself to this level to, to win me back to yourself. Just to behold and to thank him and to worship him is the chief thing to do in light of what he's done. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. He dwelt among us. He took on humanity. He became flesh, fully human, and he dwelt among us. This word for dwelt in the verse is the same word that's used for uh, sheltering or tenting, and it points really to the fact, the history of God's people, that God made himself known to them and he tabernacled with them. He dwelt in this tent that was in the middle of the compound when they were uh, in the desert. And that tent was converted to the temple which was in the middle of their country. This place where God, by his spirit, dwelt among his people. He tabernacled with them. God is a God who wants to be with his people. It's amazing. It's amazing that he cares, that he loves us. It's part of who he is. It's his glory that he loves unworthy sinners. It's his glory. It's who he is. He's a God of mercy. He's a God of grace. Grace and mercy are at the heart of God's character. His compassion and his love of his own glory and his love of his people enough to call them to enjoy his glory is behind this. He tabernacles. He's a God who dwells with us. And in the history of God's people, it's amazing, just that story of tabernacling and then being in the temple among his people. But the story here in John 1.14 tells us there's there's more to the story than simply dwelling among his people by his spirit. He comes to dwell among his people as a human himself, a actually relatively unremarkable human in many ways, but nevertheless God in the flesh. And he comes as human to dwell among us in a more profound way, a a fulfillment of everything we see in the Old Testament. His dwelling among us in Christ is, is the ultimate dwelling because he comes to be fully human. He comes to experience the fullness of being human. So he starts out as a zygote, a one-celled human, and planted in the wall of Mary's womb. He grows to a fully featured human, is born. He lives dependent on his mother, just like any baby. Depend on his mother for protection and nurture. Yes, crying in the manger as well. He's fully human. He grows up as a boy. He has to submit to his imperfect parents. Can you imagine that? I mean, I know how hard it is for us near-perfect children to submit to our imperfect parents. 
But if you were a perfect child, imagine what it's like submitting to your parents, and, him, and submit he does. By the way, children, that should encourage you. If he can submit to his parents, certainly he can give you grace to submit to yours, as imperfect as they might be. He grew, he ate, he slept, he breathed, he thought, he studied, he had to learn. He was probably teased by the other kids. Perhaps he was bullied. He probably had to wear that ugly tunic that Aunt Millie made that his, kids, that his friends thought was just so goofy. He was fully human. He learned to trade. He grew into manhood. He experienced hunger and weariness and anger and sadness. He experienced loneliness and anguish. He knew real temptation, real temptation to do the wrong thing. He was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. He knew it. He knew the fullness. He knew, he knew the, the, the attractiveness and the deceit of the enemy's lies in the world. He knew that. He experienced it, it trying to get a grip on him. He knew poverty. He knew desperate dependence on his heavenly father to take care of him and his weakness and limitations that he chose to live in as human could have called on the angels as God. He could have done what he wanted at any point. He chose to, to not grasp those things, but to live as fully human in every way. He knew what it was to watch friends suffer, to lose friends. And he himself knew suffering beyond anything any of us could ever imagine. He knew the fullness of suffering as human. This was part of God's plan for him. Hebrews 2 says something remarkable. Verse 10 says, For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory, speaking of the Father there, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. It's speaking of Christ there. And then later in verse 17 it says, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of, his, of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. It was God's plan that God the Son, the God-man, Jesus Christ, would suffer. And through that suffering... The suffering was aimed at bringing many sons and daughters to glory, to God's glory, freeing them from their sin and the stranglehold of Satan. That suffering was the part of the plan to make him perfect. Wait a second. Isn't he already perfect as God? Yes. Has he been proven perfect as a man? And so he goes through the fullness of suffering as the God-man to perfect him, to prove his perfection, to have the full experience of the suffering that humanity would face. The nth degree of suffering as a human he goes through. Suffering beyond anything any of us ever will. His suffering is larger than and greater than any of our suffering. He went through it all. You, you know suffering, he knows it more. You know a particular type of suffering, he knows it even more. He went through suffering to that degree, the fullness of the human 
possible human experience in suffering. He went through it to be proven perfect, to be fully matured, fully human. He suffered so so that he would understand and know and experience the fullness of the miseries and failures of being humans in a broken world. He didn't take any shortcuts as God. He could have. He chose not to. He didn't grasp those things. He went through it all. And it wasn't just the fact of suffering that was going on there, just, just the horror of suffering that we experienced. There was a dimension to it that, that went beyond just, just suffering, human suffering. He took it a step beyond and, and did something else in his dwelling with us, his, in his identification with us, not only to be able to identify with us in our sufferings, but to be able to identify with us in our sin. Now, he never sinned. I'm not saying that. But 2 Corinthians 5.21 makes it crystal clear He experienced sin in a profound way without ever sinning himself. It says this, For our sake, he made him, so the Father is the he, he made him and the him is Jesus. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. He made him to be sin. To to be sin. Not not just to kind of touch it lightly, not just to kind of slightly be associated with it in some way. His bearing of our sin is so substantial and profound that it says in the verse, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He took on our sins, and he himself was counted as sin itself. The one who knew no sin. He identified with our sin and taking it on himself. He bore it on the cross. And then in that place of bearing our sins, the sins of all his people across all time, bearing our sins in that place, the the father could not help but be revulsed by what he saw in his son as his son bore the sin. And so God poured out perfect justice on Christ in holy wrath. And this great servant of all, Though fully God, but in the form of man as a servant, bearing sin and bearing the wrath of God, perished for sins he didn't commit. Sins committed by you and by me, by all his people. He perished bearing those sins. He bore our sins. His dwelling with us is really deeper than we can imagine. His dwelling with us as human is deeper than I think we often consider. He was the most human human ever. I don't know about you, but sometimes I kind of think, well, like, you know, he, nah, he's kind of not quite human, you know. I mean, he's God. He had a get-out-of-jail-free card, you know. I don't get one. He went through the whole thing. He suffered the whole thing. He suffered to the nth degree as a man, fully human, for you and for me. 
Now, as God, there's infinite value in that suffering, infinite value in that payment, infinite power to redeem all those who trust him. But he is fully human. Oh, this is such an important thing to get. It's so important for us to get this aspect of who he is. To get that he identifies with us in our sufferings and he identifies with us in our, in our sin. This is, this is so important to get. So important to understand. We can feel alone in our sufferings, can't we? It's one of the worst things about going through a trial. You can feel alone. Nobody is with me in this. No one's going through what I'm going through. No one understands. And this is part of why uh, affinity groups are, are effective, right? The different affinity groups that, that are offered to help people going through trials, going through suffering with, with people who have gone through it. So grief share, the group grief share, right? Where, you, where you've gone, maybe you've grieved the loss of a loved one, so you get weekly with others who have as well, and you talk about it, and you talk about ways to move forward. Divorce care, similar, right? Um, there's other groups, groups, even groups, uh, substance abuse groups, right? NAAA, Celebrate Recovery, the power behind those groups is, hey, these guys know what it's like to wrestle with this stuff. And, they, and, they're, and we're together learning to overcome. But there is a friend closer than a brother who knows your sufferings. He knows suffering to the nth degree. He knows what it is to be alone. He knows what it is. He, he's born our sins. He's acquainted with sorrow. His name is Jesus. He understands our sufferings. And he does more than just identify as God, fully God. He has power to meet us in our sufferings, power to, to give us the ability to overcome, for he has overcome the world. He overcame. He, he suffered to the nth degree. He suffered this way. He bore our sins, and he paid the debt fully. He, he suffered to the nth degree. He perished. He overcame, and he rose again on the third day, and he lives now forevermore interceding for us. He's with us. Through faith, he dwells in our hearts. He's there to meet us in all of our trials and all of our sufferings and to redeem us and give us power to overcome. This is Jesus. This is the Jesus we celebrate at Christmas. This is the one who was born. The God-man, the glorious God-man. John says, we, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We have seen his glory. This word glory is used by John over and over about 40 times in the Gospel of John. It's a theme in John. It's a theme in the whole Scripture. And John, in saying this, isn't mean to say, like, we've seen his glory, Ha-ha, uh -huh, you haven't. That's not what he's saying. He is saying we're seen as glory. But he's inviting you in, in this gospel, to see it too. To behold it. To experience it. To taste and see that the Lord is good. That's what's going on here. There's an invitation to it. And this is God's commitment to us through the power of the Spirit, as we read the Word, as we listen to the Word proclaimed, as we fellowship around the Word together, this is what God does. We, we see His glory. We behold it. And we experience it in just a profound way, if not a more profound way, 
Because we live after Pentecost. The Spirit of God now dwells amongst us and in our hearts. And so when, when the Word is proclaimed, these truths come, the Spirit of God Himself comes and says, Yes, this is who I am. Believe, receive, live, behold, enjoy, obey. All these things are ours. And so that's what John is doing. And he's not just saying we have seen His glory like in, in his life. He was an amazing guy. You just can't imagine what it was like just to know this guy. He's saying more than that. He's saying more than that. They just got to be up close and personal. He's speaking of really the entirety of Jesus' life and his work. That's what he is getting at when he says we've seen his glory. And I would submit to you that he's particularly pointing at the cross. If you do a study in John and you look at the use of the word glory and how it functions and really look in the whole scriptures, he's pointing to ultimate revelation of the glory of God through the cross. Philippians 2, that story, that's where we see the glory of God on display. I could show you a lot of verses. Uh, John 12 is just one example. This is uh, Jesus is saying this on, I think it's Wednesday of, of Holy Week, probably, right before Holy Thursday. So this is as he's facing the crucifixion, the cross is looming before him. This is Wednesday. He's going to go to the cross Thursday night, Friday morning. He's going to be in prison and then be on the cross Friday. And it says in verse 23 of chapter 12, And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will be my servant also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So he's speaking of being glorified, and he's speaking of how it happens, right? Through death to self. That's true for us, ultimately, completely true, most true for Jesus. He says in verse 27, now is my soul troubled. Why? He knows what's coming. As a man, he knows what's coming. He knows the horror of bearing sin. He knows the horror that's coming of the holy justice of God, God's revulsion for the evil of sin, the evil of rebellion, the evil of abuse, all the things that come with sin. He knows what's coming. He says, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Jesus' purpose in his life and ministry is to glorify God. And the apex of that place of glorifying God, displaying the glory of God, is on the cross. And I could take you through the whole Bible and I think show you that the Bible ultimately is about God showing his glory and calling his people out of other choices, calling people out of glorying in something else besides God, to be rescued from that. That's what sin basically is. Sin is saying this thing is more glorious than God. And so I'm going to grab a hold of this thing, whatever that thing might be. It might be an outright evil thing. It could be a good thing that you turn into your God and then becomes evil in that. 
It's saying, I want this thing more than I want God. It's, this is more precious to me. This is more worthwhile and rewarding than God. That's what sin is. And God's plan throughout the Bible is to rescue his people from the insanity of sin, of glorying in other things, that they might glory in God, that they might see his glory and see his goodness and love him more than anything, and then have all those other things fall in the right place. So the good things become things we use for worship for God. The evil things become things we abstain from and stay away from. Not because of mere rules, but because of the glory of God. That's the storyline of the Bible. God revealing his glory, calling us to, to find our life in his glory. And the apex, the, the place that it comes to a, a peak, is on the cross. This is where God shows his glory in a more profound way than anything else. Greater than supernovas or snowflakes or even the miracles of Jesus or the teachings of Jesus. All these things. Ultimately, the cross of Christ is where we see the glory of God. So Philippians 2 continues. It says, In being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the apex of God's eternal glory. The fully God, fully man, Jesus suffering and dying on the cross for our sins and then being raised from the dead and exalted to the right hand of God. He will finish the job. He's reigning now to give time for the gospel to go forward, to give time for all of his people to come to know him. And in time, he will bring it all to conclusion and then lay it all at the Father's feet for the glory of God. The Most High has descended to become most low on the cross to glorify God that, that he might be exalted through it as well. And in this amazing drama in Scripture, this amazing drama in Philippians 2, we are, we are caught up in it because he loves us so much that he has done this for us and the Father's glory. They go together, by the way. It's not like one versus the other. Do I love them or do I love the Father? No, I love the Father, therefore I love them. I love them, therefore I love the Father. These are my people. This is all together in, in his glory and in his plan. This is the glory of Christmas. This is the glory of the story. This is the glory that, that Christ would shed his blood for us on the cross, that, that he would go from this most high place to this lowest place for us. That's the glory of God. Isn't that amazing? That's the, it's the glory of God to lower himself before all, to rescue us. And then to be rightly exalted to the right hand of the Father. And rightly have every knee bow, every tongue confess. You are Lord. There's no one like you. Glorious one, worthy of all praise, humbled yourself to the point of death, even death on the cross. There's no one like you. You deserve it all. You deserve all my life. You deserve all things. You deserve all creation to be for you. You are worthy. Worthy is the lamb that was slain. That's what's behind this Christmas story. That's the glory of the God-man. Glorious things invite us in to behold and to wonder. And glorious things invite us to share it too, right? To see something glorious 
is to come and enjoy it, but it's to share. I mean, isn't that what's going on with Instagram? I hope, right? People glory in their meals, so they take a picture of their meal and share it with others. This is a great meal. You've got to see what I'm eating. Or this is a great sunset. Or this is a great granddaughter. Whatever it might be, right? We get that. We enjoy it, but we can't keep it to ourselves. We want to share it. We want to, we want to tell others. This glory draws us in. It beckons us to come and behold and be transformed by it. And this is the point of transformation for the believer. This is what changes everything about us. We behold, we're brought in, and we see this truth. And we no longer want these other things. We want this. We want to live in this. We want to live with him as our Lord. And we want to tell others. We want others to come to the place where they can understand that this is so much better than that. That glory in Christ is the center of of our Christianity and of our lives. And it's what changes us from one degree of glory to the other, as it says, right? Beholding the glory of God in the face of Christ. We are transformed from one degree of glory to the other. We see this glory, and it changes us from one degree to the next. Actually, if you look in that passage, it also includes that other point I'm making. These two things. It beckons us to come and behold and be transformed, and it, and it propels us outward to tell others. Philippians, I mean, Corinthians chapter 2. No, Corinthians chapter 4 and 5, sorry. It says, 2 Corinthians, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Just what I said. Then later on, if you follow the flow of that, in verse 20, chapter 5, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. In the verse I quoted earlier, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You behold, you are transformed, and you proclaim. That's what goes on. When we get this Christmas story, when we get Philippians 2, when we get the gospel, when we get the cross, it does these things. If the band could come up as we close. So this morning, I just want to call you to do two things in light of this. One is to behold the glory of God. Behold it. Behold the glory of God. Take it in, wonder, worship, enjoy. And maybe for you, beholding it means you just got to slow down a little bit and talk to God or read your Bible. Maybe you need to slow down and, and put on some worship music. And listen. Maybe you need to do more than just put it on. Maybe you need to sing with it. Maybe you need to get up and dance with your worship music and give glory to God and celebrate who he is and what he's done for you. This Christmas season, you are called by the Lord through his word. I believe even today as you listen, you are called to glory in Christ, to behold and enjoy his glory. So make time, brother and sister, to do that. Behold and be transformed from one degree to the next as you do that. Then second thing, tell somebody. Somehow, tell somebody. Yes, love them enough that they're convinced that it's not just a passing idea for you. But don't leave out the details. You cannot show the glory of God simply through your lifestyle. Yes, indeed, your lifestyle should give God glory. But you need to tell them 
about this. Tell somebody, somehow, tell those who are your friends and trust you about what is most important to you this Christmas. Get on Facebook and do something that's true and respectful about the glory of God. Write Christmas cards, but tell somebody, find some way to share this beautiful glory, this precious glory, this infinitely valuable glory with others. Let's take a minute to pray and ask the Lord to do these two things in our lives this Christmas season. And we'll, we'll come and close in song together.